back to Game of Thrones 2 Electric Boogaloo. I'm your host, Anthony. This week, John and David of Lorehound fame join me to talk about a Tyrion chapter. And then my friend, Scottish historian Ian McInnes, joins me to talk a little bit about ransom and hostage taking in the medieval world. Hey, be sure to check out John and David's podcasts over at thelorehounds.com. They're excellent podcasters in their own right, covering some of your favorite televisions. In addition to that, I'll be jumping on with them to talk about the Silmarillion, because they also do book coverage kind of like this podcast. All right, here are John and David. David and John, welcome back to Bukaloo. I'm excited to talk Tyrion with you. Thanks for the invitation. It's great to be back. I feel like Tyrion and Clash, it's like vintage Tyrion. Mm -hmm. It's it's like a little later in the book, it kind of becomes a bummer. (laughs) I I do enjoy meeting him in Game of Thrones, but he doesn't quite have his sea legs yet. I really feel like this is the book where Tyrion comes into his own. Agreed. Agreed. I think that Tyrion is a fascinating character because he's... An outsider in an insider circle, you know, he has always been ostracized within his own family, but his own Mm -hmm. family is so inside the establishment and, and completely just, you know, pictures themselves above everybody else and lifestyle wise, Mm -hmm. they, they are above everybody else. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's fascinating to see him sort of wrestle with having all this privilege and also being rejected in ways that are more base, like love and and acceptance mm-hmm. and and relationships and and it's it's why I think he's one of the more compelling characters in the series overall. Even in this chapter, we see that he knows that being a Lannister is better than anything else. Mm-hmm. Actually, and says he, it, and he hates it. Mm. <laughs> you know, he so he knows he needs it. And he, he just hates it. Right. Like being born the way he was, you know, with a disability, uh-huh. with, you know, I, he probably would not have survived well if he was not rich as all hell. I think he says a couple times, he's like, if I wasn't born to wealth, they would have left me out in the woods. Right. Yeah. And in this chapter, the the sentence is, um, that was the way of war. The small folk were slaughtered while yeah. the highborn were held for ransom. Remind me to thank the gods that I was born a Lannister. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So, yeah. So, yeah. Not only that, he's like de facto the most powerful man in the in the entire kingdom. Right. Um, I mean, I guess you could say Tywin has a, a claim on that. But in the city, in King's Landing, Tyrion is really ruling the roost. Right. right? He's the hand with the plan. <laughs> And then we get to see this little window when Cersei is weeping. He can't believe it that she's weeping. He goes to touch her shoulder to comfort her. And she just reviles like he's a a big spider that touches her shoulder or something. Mm -hmm. And he's reminded that that, that she sees him as a monster. And he says in this chapter... That hurt more than the slap, yeah. right? Yeah, right. So it's it's one of these things. He he needs that sort of basic human interaction, and he's always going to 
fail at getting it. Which is what puts him in such a desperate place later, where he, at the minute Shay gives him yeah. any affection, he's ready to melt right in front of oh, her. Man. He's just Talk about a, desperate to get anything. Yeah. Achilles heel, this guy. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let me read my synopsis here where you can jump right in. After confirming the production of Wildfire, Tyrion is met by Bronn. Bronn informs him that he has two matters to attend to. Turns out that Sir Cleos has arrived with Rob's peace terms. Tyrion receives this letter dubiously, then makes his way to Cersei. On his way, he observes a street prophet condemning the royals, the High Septon, and a few others, including himself. He meets Cersei, who is enraged and confronts him about arranging Marcetta's departure to Dorne. After a couple slaps and several tears, Tyrion tries his best to reassure her. The two discuss the news of war, recent feuds with the Dornish, and hostages. Finally, Tyrion sees his canary trap come to fruition. So, Lorehounds, what shall we talk about today? Well, in reading this um, chapter, at least for me, and I'm not sure where, where John's come down, but... Um, my this is sort of where my thesis of Tyrion is really solidified that he's a person who has a sense of honor he has some kind of moral compass mm. the way he treats sir cleos frey uh the way that he works with the other people but that he's got this great head for administration mm. and the ability to manage and set policy and and do all these plans but ultimately he while he that that head for administration is not necessary does not necessarily translate into a the cunning needed to play the game of thrones successfully hmm. they're He's two different hmm. skills right completely two different skills and it's i think kinda, this is where for me it becomes clear that those those are two separate hmm. things it's kind of hmm. like what we're talking about with the mandalorian you know you had all these rebels who fought a war against this giant empire and they won and they conquered and now they have to govern and <laughs> that sucks and they're not good at it uh it's wasn't there something in the news recently that the taliban is cranky because yeah. they've had to govern now in afghanistan and they're like oh man we have nine to fives now it's a it's a different <laughs> skill set it is i i think that i mean you could point to a few different places in the recent history for instance you know in the 70s rhodesia becomes zimbabwe yeah and Mugabe, who's this fantastic populist general, yeah, great war leader, becomes president and immediately sets himself up as a dictator and rules there for almost 50 years as a dictator. And a horrible, horrible guy. And yet, for a moment, you know, there's that sometimes... Sometimes being good at war makes you bad at everything else. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah. And sometimes being good at in normal life doesn't necessarily make you a great wartime right. president. I mean, Churchill is sort of has this distinction, right? Kind of a failure until World War II, and then he's kind of he becomes heroic during World War right. II. We're getting geared up for the 6th Annual Summer Badass Fest. 
And while we're working on a slate of apex badass films to enjoy, we've got an early action-packed announcement to make. Just like last year, we're kicking off Badass Season with a live movie watch and podcast recording. We've rented out a theater for connoisseurs of action films and bald move fans that just want to have a great time. Unlike last year, this year's movie is top secret. Hush, hush. No hints, except it's incredibly badass. It stars an absolute icon of the genre. We're willing to bet most of you haven't seen it, and it's going to be an incredible viewing experience with a packed house of bald movers. Those of you who came to last year's screening of Total Recall know what a party it was. And those of you who didn't, <laughs> now's your chance to experience it. Meet me and Jim, order some custom movie-themed drinks at the theater's full bar, then watch us record the full podcast for the movie. We reserved the venue over twice the size as last year, but seating is still limited. It's happening Friday, 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 June 21st at 7 p.m. in our hometown of Cincinnati. Get full details and buy tickets at baldmove.com slash live. Cincinnati's actually a pretty great city to visit, and we've got lots of details for side adventures on our event page as well. The Reds are playing the Boston Red Sox in their fantastic Riverside Stadium. The thrills of Kings Island just minutes away, and I'll be leading a kayak trip down the scenic Little Miami River on Saturday. Again, get full details and get your tickets now on our Badass Fest 6 page at baldmove.com slash live live. Since the dawn of time, we've been putting clothes on our back that identify us with our people, our group, our tribe. And why Bald Move might be one of the smallest, weirdest tribes out there, transcending all concepts of border, class, culture, and creed, we still have respect for the old ways. At support.baldmove.com, you can get t-shirts, hats, mugs, and more. We have something for every one of our podcasts, or just wear the four pips of the Bald Move logo with pride. Bald Move merch beats running around naked, and they make a great gift for the Bald Move fan in your life. Join our tribe! Head over to support.baldmove.com and click on merch to start shopping. Now, I will, let me just mud, muddy the waters a little bit here on on the suggestion that playing the Game of Thrones and having a moral compass is maybe two different things. Well, so I think it that, was a, a head for business or a head for administration, mm, for civil mm. administration, and the cunning for the Game of Thrones. Sure. I think that they there is a small overlap. Maybe it's a, sure. a little sliver of the, the Venn diagram. Mm-hmm. Sure. But there's this place in this chapter where the pyromancer says, hey, we should have a feast. We we would love to show off our stuff for Joffrey and <laughs> yeah. maybe burn a few fools alive for fun or something. Uh, and Tyrion says, no, the king has prohibited feasts until the people of the city are well fed. Now, of course, in his interior, you know, this is not Joffrey's idea at all. This is Tyrion's idea. Right. Joffrey's idea is to, when the when the hungry mob comes to the gate... Goes out there with this crossbow or whatever and just kills four of them. 
Uh, Turn and, your face you know, into a poop target, right? That's, and uh, then, he's, <laughs> then Joffrey that's calls you out, you have my permission to eat each other. Yeah. <laughs> so this this is Joffrey's idea of, of ruling. And what Tyrion says is really interesting. He says, winning us even more, friends. So mm. he, he's thinking this very sarcastically. This is an example of one of those times where it is morally right to feed the people of your city. It is also a good strategic play not to have people starving within your walls because mm-hmm. when the siege begins you want them on your side not your enemy's side right so it it is it is one of the and then of course you could muddy it even further and say well does Tyrion really even care or is he just playing the game of thrones i think that's the one of the things that's different about Tyrion is that he does care at some mm. level mm. He does. He he can sympathize with the plight of the small folk, and I think he understands that ultimately, any administration, be it democratic, uh, theocratic, mm. royal, what have you, ultimately rests on this bed of people who mm. are producing, who are crafting, who are smithing. You know all the things, and if you don't have that, then there's no there's no structure. So kind of a noblesse oblige kind of. Uh, mm. uh, attitude. Mm. So I think he's got that. Whereas Cersei clearly does not have that compass. You know, I I'd like to take a slightly different take on that, which okay. is that I think that Tyrion treats small folk more on a purpose level than a human level. But when he when you bring him down to one on one with someone, whether it is small folk or on you know a highborn person. He is much more empathetic. He's, you know, much mm. more, much more loving, much more able to, you know, see this person as a human being who deserves the things that they need. I, I think that he does fall into the trap that many people in power f- fall into, which is when it's a person, they are a person. When it's people, mm-hmm. they are a thing. Mm. Yeah, right. That's interesting. I'm trying to think of like, who has Tyrion shown kindness to that wasn't sort of connected to a no- nobility, right? Mm. Even Jon Snow's connected to Winterfell, right? Right. But I think he he strikes up a pretty good relationship with Yorn on the way down before mm-hmm. he gets captured. Right. Right? Bronn, you know, it's uh... Bronze, yes. Although that's transactional too. Yeah, I think he actually starts to like Bronn. I think Braun never loses sight that it's transactional. Right? I agree. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Mm-hmm. Even all the way through the end, he's like, I got my title. I've got my mm-hmm. gold. What do I need in, any more from this? Right. I guess the other really cynical thing to say on this point is if you're comparing your morality with Joffrey, you're going to win every time. It's <laughs> <laughs> a true little bar. True. <laughs> I'll take those odds. <laughs> so. Shall we talk about the pyromancers or Cersei or the peace terms? Where, where do you want to dive in here? I, I don't know about John. I mean, I, I find the, the pyromancers as a device really show Tyrion's, uh, again, his administrative abilities. And then the Cersei stuff is is all that family stuff. And, and it's a lot about her. The one thing I didn't make sense of was the prophet in the square. Uh-huh. And then there's the Sir Cleos Frey stuff, which again is political administration. I don't know, John. What? I love I love that 
this whole city almost got burnt down by a guy abusing the works of the pyromancers. <laughs> and when he gets deposed and his enemies take over, they're like, well, but they're union, so let's just let them keep going. <laughs> it's insane. It's an insane proposition. The whole city I, is like underneath. There's a giant bomb sitting right, under the city. Right. Why would you allow this to keep happening and to keep building the bombs? And the little clay jars are getting more soaked and soaked. Yes. And the fruit's getting riper and riper. That's right. Uh, I thought it was interesting that the pyromancers almost were market corrected by the maesters. Hmm. Yeah. You know, they had like their heyday. Right. And it makes sense. I mean, okay, so this is a little bit of fan theory slash headcanon, but I I think that their quote-unquote magic is enhanced by the existence of dragons. Hmm. Isn't it and they, stated somewhere? Yeah, the, I think the, someone says that. Someone yeah. says, we, you know, we our production has increased dramatically, and then, of course, it's kind of up to the reader to, to determine right. why, right? So I think it's pretty good. It's a pretty good fan theory that dragons sort of increase magic globally. So it would make sense that this magical guild holds political power until dragons go away. And then what? what's their use? Right. Right. What is their use? If you ever want to blow up the entire city, they're there for you. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but short of that. The maesters absolutely are more valuable. I always felt that wildfire being a proxy for napalm in a Uh. pre-industrial civilization, you know, an Iron Age civilization, that's a pretty powerful weapon and a pretty powerful tool. And if dragons are nuclear, Uh um, you know, you've got this class of guys who can who can make this stuff and use this stuff and it's not been used in a long time until the the battle of the black fire mm. bay right and that's like a an, an incredible use of it um that it, just like you know minuteman silos you know still out there in the in the cornfields of Iowa and the you know nuclear biological labs that we have somewhere they're just at this low level and you know, unless there's some threat that then suddenly we need them, Hmm. but we never really want to get rid of them because what if we do need them? So I always felt that, um, quick fire was in that class as well as the fact that, uh, I forget who was the, the mad King heiress. Yeah. Yeah. Who was burning people alive with this stuff. I'm sure a lot of people were like, well, we don't need to be playing with the wildfire anymore. That was a little crazy time. We're going to chill out for a while now. Of course, you know, show only. But we end up seeing, you know, Baylor Sept get blown up, right? (laughs) Right, exactly. And so you kind of, like in this chapter, it it sets it up. If if Martin wants to do that with the books, he can absolutely do that with the books. I think that without knowing that about the show, I mean, my feeling is that Jon Snow just killed a white with fire. Mm-hmm. Mm. And we know that there's a threat coming south from, you know, the the undead or something. I think that my feeling would be, of course, you're going to end up using this eventually to combat winter yeah. coming coming south. Mm. Um, and of course, we don't know if that will happen or not. But that's sort of the nat- that would for me, that would be the natural solution. 
That mm. makes sense. That, yeah. that, that makes a lot of sense. That that it's not like you want to be transporting wildfire all the way up to the wall. But if yeah. the, if the threat from the north comes down far enough, you've got mm. uh, this ultimate defense against those mystical magical. Yeah, or creatures. you just send the pyromancers up to up to Winterfell or the wall or something, and mm. just have them set up shop there or something. You know, um, the question there, I think, is who has the Iron Throne at that point in the books? Because right. there's all these other players that aren't in the show. I've always been a fan of the theory that. Fagon will come and conquer for a bit, uh, leading to some some yeah, yeah. awkward political situations. And yeah. I'm like, hmm, wouldn't that be fun if Fagon were on the throne, and he lets them take the wildfire up? Now you have me. Now you have me thinking, Anthony. I mean, I, I I'm my gears are turning. <laughs> so I mean, now we're sort of way off the rails here. But my <laughs> feeling is that just if I'm going to piggyback on that theory, which I like. What if it's not just Magor's holdfast? Maybe the whole city goes up, hmm. and then you revert back to the citadel being sort of the center of power. Uh, yeah, and that cool. really does allow all of the the citadel plots in those later books to to really come to the fore. Hmm. Uh, now King's Landing is just no more. Right. That Smoky that Road. would absolutely you know it's a, it's a second Heron Hall or something. Right. Right. Uh, that would be interesting. I all right. I do want to talk about the prophet here. Yes, and I'll go ahead and read the the prophecy. When I was reading this, I thought, "Oh, this sounds this sounds like the Book of Revelation," mm. and it actually has, I think, a lot of parallels to what biblical prophecy actually does. In in that it is more of a commentary on present day events rather than future foretelling. Right. Okay. Here's what the prophet, the street prophet says. He says, corruption, the man cries shrilly. There is the warning. Behold, the father's scourge. He pointed to the fuzzy red wound in the sky. From this vantage point, the distant castle on Aegon's high hill was directly behind him, with a comet hanging forebodingly over the towers. We have become swollen, bloated, foul brother couples with sister in the bed of kings and the fruit of their incest, capers in the palace, to the piping of a twisted little monkey demon. High-born ladies fornicate with fools and give birth to monsters. Even the high septon has forgotten the gods. He bathes with scented waters and grows fat on the lark and lamprey while his people starve. Anyway, he goes on, but I think we have what looks like very cryptic language. Mm-hmm. But if you've been sort of following the rumor mill of King's Landing, it's pretty clear that the incest and the product of incest are, are Jamie and Cersei because of Stannis' letter. You've got the fruit of their incest, that's Joffrey, to the piping of a twisted monkey demon, that's clearly Tyrion. Right. <laughs> um, highborn ladies uh, fornicate with fools, that's the, the rumor that they invent about Lady Celsi and Patchface uh, giving birth to monsters is supposed to be, uh, you know, the a veiled reference to uh, Stannis's daughter. And then, of course, Tyrion supplies us the information about the High Septon being a, a portly fellow. Um, I just thought that's it's a great little bit of bringing religion into this world in a different way. 
and it's using the stuff that we know in the books, all the plot lines in the books, and kind of creating an apocalyptic verbiage out of this stuff. And then he he ends it saying, bathe in the wine of righteousness or you shall be bathed in fire. Fire! <laughs> yeah. And, you know, we get the battle at the end there where the bay is completely set on fire. Right, yeah. Very so, good. very portent, you know. Uh, yeah, and actually that's that's pretty close to what biblical prophecy does too because you've got, most of the time, you've got all of these cryptic details that, that you can chart one to one with political figures in in the in the time of the prophet. Yeah. And then there's this little glimmer at the end that portends the future. Mm. So there's a mm. tiny bit at the end that's and it's supposed to portend something that happens in the immediate future. It's never supposed to portend something that's happening way 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 down in, you know, thousands of years later. So I thought that was an, a, a clever way to kind of give voice to almost a populist leader in the city because there are so few lowborn voices that you actually hear in this right. novel. I thought it was also interesting the the mention of the comet. Again, the comet, mm-hmm. you know, meaning something different to somebody else. Everybody's yeah. got their individual interpretation. I mean, last time we were on the podcast, Dion was looking at it as saying, Oh, that's my comet. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna this is my sign for me to, you know, kick some ass. Yeah. Meanwhile, and then he did, and everything worked out for him. <laughs> <laughs> the the young hungs. I was going to say unsung hero of the story. Right. I said unhung. Unhung. Uh, nice little Freudian slip there. Yeah. Yeah. So we get a new title for the comet: the Father Scourge. Mm. Uh, and now it's a, just a little fuzzy. It's it's almost like a little smear on the sky. It's you can. It, it's almost like it's fading into the distance right mm. is it i don't know where it is on the the timeline of the story cuz the comet i don't recall doing ever much other than just passing in the sky and everybody's pointing at it and interpreting it yeah but it so, doesn't ever tie in anywhere yeah so this is actually this is the chapter where we last see the comet really oh wow yeah. so, so notable no- no- notable departures notable departures mm. uh the comet uh, and yet we do have a mention of it later on because when Danny is in Karth, the warlocks say, we sent the comet to bring you here. Oh, so, but, but I don't think you see the comet anymore after this chapter. Right. Hmm. So here's a question for you both. Rob's peace terms. Mm-hmm. Um. Tyrion thinks that what he can do is uh, he thinks ah oh, this these are unacceptable of course um, we're not going to let the North become an independent state we're not going to you know give back the, the girls and send back Ned's bones and do all of this stuff but and this is where Tyrion thinks he's clever he said I'll just keep sending peace terms back and forth to Rob and this is going to bias tons of time and i'm kind of wondering is this a good idea is this a good strategy just keep sending sir kleos back and forth with slightly revised peace terms with a 14 year old boy who's a little bit bloodthirsty is it a good idea to keep yeah is is this a good idea because he doesn't really want 
Rob to accept his peace terms. Right. He wants Rob to re- reject them and revise them and to have this continue to buy time. Hmm. Is this a good strategy? Depends on how much you believe in Tywin. Right? Yeah. yeah. Depends on if you have a lot of confidence in him. Like, you know, just give him a little more time. The lion will triumph. Uh-huh. Or if you're like, oh, he's, an, he's getting a little up there. I'm not sure if he has it in him to win this war anymore. Maybe we should uh, look look towards settlement here. Right. I I, I kind of ag- agree with your angle there, John, is that Ty, you need to be given Tywin time in the field. Mm. Tywin is the most deadly you know, person out there on the, on the battlefield in the chess board right. mm-hmm. of, of Westeros. And Tyrion spells it out for Cersei and he maps it out. Well, we've got, you know, this is happening here mm-hmm. at, uh, at Casterly Rock. You know, we've got Tywin here. We've got this here. We've got that there. And every time she questions it, he points out another position on the chessboard where Rob is in a really intractable bind yeah. Um, that if he moves any direction further south, they're going to pounce on him. Tywin's and- a little bit like, um, he's a little bit like a, the queen on the chessboard mm. in that he's actually defending multiple routes at once. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of why he's waiting at Harrenhal, where sort of Cersei sees that and thinks, Weakness. he's doing nothing. Mm-hmm. And Tyrion's like, mm, actually, that's... He's perfectly positioned to wait this out. Now, the question is, waiting things out is certainly the right move in retrospect, because what we know happens is that this 14-year-old boy falls in love. He's he's out there. He's going to fall in love because he's he's bored and, you know. He's a boy. He's he's kind of circling the the riverlands, and, and he's going to end up ruining his 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 life and his house's life and we know what's going to happen because Tyrion's playing a waiting game but if that doesn't happen Stannis could show up any day yep Renly could show up any day if those two brothers would just coordinate when they're going to show up the waiting game is not a smart idea mm. I don't I mean it I mean, if if those two, if the two Stannis brothers decide to do a little pincer maneuver, waiting out Rob Stark is maybe not the best choice. Right. But I I don't know. I mean, it it, it clearly, in retrospect, it, it clearly works out for Tyrion. Um, I think for Rob is up north. King's Landing is in the middle here. There's nothing he can do. No, there's nothing that. Tyrion can do from King's Landing. That's going to change the tactical position to the north. And so if he can occupy a little bit of Rob's brain in terms of batting back and forth uh, terms and just delaying things and just stick, you know, Mm -hmm. making these little sticky, that can only play into Tywin's hands. But you're right. If the Baratheons got it together, which is why he's going for the wildfire, because he doesn't have mm-hmm. anything else but the wildfire. Mm-hmm. And then he goes to his his clever plan of training all the troops with green paint and then lamp oil, which just goes to his his smart administration, his smart right, right, civil right. administration. Sure, sure. Um, yeah, but I don't think he's got anything else but wildfire to protect the city. I mean, here's a crazy idea. How about make peace with the North? 
<laughs> the Lannisters are never. How about, how about just how about how about getting Rob on your side? How about saying, okay, mm. sure, you can have if you can help me defend this city against Stannis and Renly, you can have the North as an independent country. Then no one cares about the North anyway. Of course, this is not going to happen because Tywin's never going to let it happen. Yeah, Tywin's never going to let that happen. But, but you could. That could be a feint. You know, let let the Northerners go back north and then go conquer the North later. Well, and 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 uh, Tyrion has a, an appreciation for the North for the time when the time yeah. that he spent there. So, uh, yeah, I think he'd be Tyrion himself would probably be more than happy to cede some of that control to the North. I doubt Joffrey's gonna go for that. <laughs> no, but yeah, but Tyrion's <laughs> but, not in but charge. But Cersei will. Cersei will sure. if she can get Jamie back. I think right, she'd she be happy to to right. give the North, give away the North. I wanted to go back really quickly to something you said about uh, Cersei there, and uh, it was a quote I pulled. Cersei sniffed. I should have been born a man. I would have had yeah. no need of any of you then. None of this would have been allowed to happen. How mm. could Jamie let himself be captured by that boy? And father, I trusted him, fool that I am. But where is he now that he's wanted? What is he doing? Making war, says Tyrion. From behind the halls of Harrenhal, she said scornfully. And this just goes to the chip that Cersei has mm -hmm. on her shoulder, the her entire run in the books, that she's so frustrated that she's trapped uh, by these gender norms that she can't actually exercise the power that she thinks that she should be due. And I don't know that she's clever and smart enough to play all these games without being a Lannister. Right. Cause she's got a great position of power from where uh -huh. just given to her, but mm -hmm. is she really that smart and whether regardless of gender norms and, and her particular mm -hmm. position, I don't know that she's that good of a player of the game of Thrones. I don't know. Hmm. I mean, I think she, and everyone else thinks that she is the female version of Jamie. Yeah. And what do they say about Jamie? If it was if it was Tywin as a hostage and Jamie was commanding the army, he'd be throwing every single yes. troop at River Run. He'd be banging his head on the walls of River Run. You know, Tyrion says, "Well, not everyone can be as bold as Jamie." I think that there's a little subtext there. It's like that that would actually be kind of a stupid play. Yeah. Mm. Yes, absolutely. And so the fact that you lack patience is it's probably a bad thing that you're the female version of Jamie. Or you could say the reverse. It's kind of a bad thing that Jamie's the male version of you. And yet, just to give her her due, I think it was her idea to get the pyromancers involved, mm. which ends mm. up being kind of key to Tyrion's strategy in the end. Interesting. You know, and, and I'll say this is that when Cersei does show vulnerability, and I don't think it's just a lack of power, it's also seeing her daughter have this lack of autonomy the same way that she did. You monster. Marcella is my only daughter. Do you really think I'll let you sell her like a common whore? Marcella's a princess. Some would say she was born for this. I will not let you ship her off to Dawn as I was shipped off to Robert Baratheon. Dawn is the safest place for her. Are you mad? The Martells loathe us. Mm. Tyrion does try to reach out to her, you know, in the same way we say, you know, Tyrion does have empathy. Yeah. And she slaps it right back. And and so, you know, Cersei's her own worst enemy, too. She's not willing Agreed. to accept the boons that she has. 
Yeah. She's so wounded. Uh, another little qu- quote. Uh, I say that Marcella will not be shipped off to this Dornishman the way I was shipped to Robert Baratheon. Mm-hmm. So she is so cut and wounded by mm-hmm. and so angry at having her agency stripped from her and being shoved at this, you know, uh, oaf of a man who, mm-hmm. you know, is it could be further from the Lannister way of doing things, right? God mm-hmm. bless Bessie. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it so galls her and it so angers her that I, you know, she's she's so damaged by it. I, I think it's not. It wouldn't. It would not be unfair to say that Tyrion has a fair amount of misogyny baked in. What, oh, yeah. <laughs> what does he say? He says she's a princess. One could say that she was born for such an arrangement, yeah, right? Exactly. Which is sort of you could read that in a couple ways, and maybe you should read it in both ways. But to say he is just stating the fact of the culture and using the assets he has at hand, mm-hmm. and yet he can see how this has ruined his sister's life, mm-hmm. and he can see yeah. what the damage it's done to his sister's life. And he's he's clearly using a, a niece that he claims to love as a bargaining chip. Now you could say, well, actually, he might believe that the Dorn is the safest place for her. What do What do they say? Uh, hate the game, not the player. I mean, look, he kills Shay. He strangles Shay. <laughs> he does. <laughs> he does. Right. He shoots his father with a. And I think he the- his memory of Taisha is laced with a certain amount of. Wounded hatred. For sure. Yep. Yep. Is she a whore who tricked him or not? And it's almost like he has to believe that she is because otherwise what he did to her at the end is almost too monster. Like it's it's almost cognitive dissonance in that way. Like I can't believe that I'm the kind of person that would do that to the, the woman I love. It's easier for me to believe the lie that she was a whore. Mm-hmm. So I think. Yes, he's an absolutely complicated character who displays at times frightening misogyny. And yeah. I think okay. I think we might see a bit of that here. Yeah. The tactical or the strategic move of sending Micella down there is um I think you can't you can't fault it. It's mm-hmm. the thing to do. Absolutely is the thing to do. Well, making peace with Dorne is certainly the thing to do. We right, need that right. southern tip ally all the way down there. That mm. makes sense. Because that's to the flat you know, that's to the rear of the Baratheons. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Kind of funny that the the Dornish are the ones who the Targaryens had so much trouble getting in line and they're the only ones left for the Lannisters. <laughs> I know there's others, you know, that you got the you got Hightower at, Yeah, and we, we have that little funny. We have that little detail that yeah, they hate us, but they've only hated us for 15 years. They've hated <laughs> they've hated the Storm's End for a thousand years. Mm. So, of course they're not going to be happy to ally with the Baratheon boys, either one of them. Right. I guess so, that's your relationship with the Dornish is, is how little do they hate me, not how much do they like right. me. Right. Yeah, yeah. And and I think, I don't know if we've heard before the about that backstory. We we get, a, we get a couple little windows into the backstory of Westeros. A little bit of world building in that that's we true. find out that there's yeah. this major feud between Storm's End and Dorne g- dating back, you know, a thousand years or whatever. Is this the 
first we've heard of Dorne? No, we've heard of Dorne before. I mean, we've heard of uh, introduced in sort of a casual way. Right. Okay. Um, this I is have a substantial we... bite, though. Of, here's of here's a good here's Dorne a question, before. though. Have we met any Dornish characters in this? I don't think so. In those mm. first two books, yet. I don't think so. I mean, either, do they yeah. show up in the third book? This is this is a good question. The fourth is where we get the POVs, right? That's where we we start to get yeah that. some serious POVs in the fourth book. Because I remember when we were when when we started getting those POVs, I was like, huh, what, where? You know, I was really uh-huh. disoriented. It took me a minute. To- yeah, I mean, he's gotten a lot of criticism. George has gotten a lot of criticism for expanding it that far. Yeah, and uh, yeah, some people love it, some people don't. Yeah, the other thing that I thought was interesting was that. There's the subtle protest by Cersei to say, you're marrying off my daughter. In reality, she's going to be just a hostage. Mm-hmm. And then Tyrion says, an honored guest, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> and I think that that kind of... It was an unplanned for disassembly. That's all it was. <laughs> so to Sorry, me, it David. kind of like touches that thin line between guest and hostage. And specifically, the mar- these marriage arrangements are supposed to bring peace in the same mm-hmm. way hostages are supposed to keep peace. And I thought, how interesting that what one person calls a marriage arrangement, another person calls a hostage situation. Well, For- I mean, think about how we talked about Theon last time, right? Yeah. You know, he was treated well by the Starks. But was he? You know, he was really, he was a hostage. That's that's what he was the whole time, and right. he always knew it, and he was always treated a little differently from the people who he was raised with as siblings. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that, that ended up biting the Starks. Or, and, and I've been kind of on this a lot lately, but, you know, you got Peter Baelish warded at River Run, and mm-hmm. this kind of creates one of the, the, the central villains of the entire series. Commission podcasts are an awesome feature here at Bald Move that allows you, the individual listener, to decide what we talk about for a single podcast. The community loves it because it often leads to fun fan-favorite films and TV shows that we've overlooked getting the coverage they deserve. And we love it because we're constantly exposed to great stuff that's not even on our radar. The way it works is simple. You go to support.baldmove.com and you click on commissions. Then you pay the flat rate for the commission and tell us what two-ish hours of content you'd like us to make podcast on. Then we'll contact you for details, advanced feedback, and any dedications you'd like to make. Then we watch the thing, discuss the thing, turn it into a podcast, and pump it right into your ears. We get consistently great feedback on how much our commissioners love their podcast, and they make great gifts for the dedicated Bald Move fan in your life. And who knows, that dedicated fan could even be you. Treat yourself. Check out support.baldmove.com for more info. You've been listening to quite a few Bald Move podcasts now, but you're not in the club? Whoo boy, you are missing out. Not only are all of our premium club podcast feeds completely ad-free, but we have lots of other great content exclusively for people in the club. There's a weekly lunch with Jim and Aaron where we chat with fans about anything and everything from TV and films, food, fun, life advice, and more. But there's also Off the Clock, our premium podcast where we talk about all the shows we don't have time for on our public feeds. 
Plus, you get access to our full spoiler-filled first-round movie reviews of our newly released films. Don't forget Instant Take and Talk Podcast, where we give our hot takes and discuss television shows with our fans live and immediately after the episode airs. With mega shows like House of the Dragon coming this summer, we're going to have lots to talk about. Not to mention access to our fun and friendly community of club members with exclusive Discord channels and a dedicated forum. It's one of the best places on the internet to hang out and chat about pop culture. Bottom line, you're helping two regular type guys in the Midwest make the content you like to listen to, which some would say is rewarding to itself. Help keep the lights on and the bits flowing at Bald Move. And get some awesome content for yourself. Head to support.baldmove.com to join the club today. One thing that I found interesting, not interesting, I, I, I don't know where else we got this prior, but the relationship between Cersei and Tyrion as brother and sister is the 100% of their relationship is encapsulated in this very short conversation. Mm, mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, her chip on her shoulder, her her anger and resentment at being a honored guest, a mm-hmm. you know, child bride, a, yeah. you know, all these things, not having the the gender roles uh, that she could actually to express what she wants. So all of that's there. Tyrion and his cunning and his clever little wits. Um, you right. know the little his little witticisms. And what else is a hand for? It will good for if not to hand you things. Right. Like that's like such right. a great Tyrion line. But also so, he's he's great at talking her down, right? Like he does actually successfully talk her down, and and while he while he gets her riled up for a while, he he says I think at one point you know okay so the Marcella thing's a lock, right? We're gonna we're gonna do that now. We're we're okay mm. now. Yeah, yeah. He walks away thinking, I got that. I got what I wanted out of that. On top of that, right? he's seen her vulnerable in a way that he's mm-hmm. never seen her vulnerable before. And he reaches out to her. He still has uh, some sort of heart. So her, the whole, yes. their whole relationship is packed right into this one small conversation. Yeah, yeah. And it's such a an expression of Martin's writing to pack political, tactical, family, you know, uh, war, all, all these things squeezed into this one short little interaction well that's why it feels so real right it's it's that war in the real world isn't you know a chess game it's it is emotional there are feelings Mm. attached it's Mm -hmm. how would this make the country feel if we made this move how Mm. would i feel if i were the one to pull this trigger to to send this squad to this country you know it's Mm -hmm. it is it is much more emotional than people give it credit for and the fact that we have these world leaders who get into rooms together to make decisions and we have all the people working under them. And th- this is watching that happen in action. I think George, one of his great strengths is layering that, like you're saying, David, mm-hmm. layering yeah. that emotion yeah. on top of the logistics that most people dismiss war as. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah. And making it very uh, real for us in mm-hmm. a human interaction these great geopolitical goings-ons, we can relate to them, understand them, see them, vibe with them because he's able to bring it into this human relatable scale. Well, and what does Cleo say? Cleo says, oh man, things are horrible out on the King's Road yeah. and the God's Eye. 
And it's a throwaway line, and he says it's horrible, and you know there's no food, and it's being burnt, and every, you know it's just a hellscape out there, which could easily be under recognized, except for the fact that he has a character traveling in that region, Arya, mm-hmm. yeah. right at this moment, right? right? So when he says things are bad, especially at the god's eye, immediately I was thinking, yeah, I know, I, I just saw that through Arya's <laughs> eyes, right? Exactly. Yeah. 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 All right, notable introductions in the chapter. We find out that the pyromancers refer to each other as wisdom. Like, <laughs> so cringe. Like wisdom musen, musender or mus- it's so low red. Munsitter. Uh, the, well, the Wheel of Time has that title too, and I laughed when they when Tyrion's making fun of it because it's just he did oh, such a good interest- takedown of it. Oh, that's good. Oh, I hadn't made that connection. That's, little that's a, great, there, a little, little dig there. Yeah. A little dig. Very good. And uh, we learn about the fraught relationship between the maesters and the pyromancers. Um, we hear the hear of Cobbler Square for the first time, and we hear about the thousand-year feud between Stormzen and Dorne. Notable departures: we mentioned the comet. Um, or went out. Yeah. <laughs> bye bye, comet. Uh, and show differences. Take care, my lord. I remember reading an old sailor's proverb. Piss on wildfire and your cock burns off. Oh, no, I have not conducted this experiment. It, it could well be true. The substance burns so hot, it melts wood, stone, even steel. And, of course, flesh. The substance burns so hot, it melts flesh like tallow. After the dragons died, Wildfire was the key to the Targaryen power. <laughs> My companion takes issue. If I could tell you how many crazy old men I've seen pushing carts around army camps, making grand claims about jars full of pig shit. No offense, men. Our order does not deal in pig shit. The substance is far given form, and we have been perfecting it since the days of Magor. The major difference in the show is that they frame the receipt of Rob's letter differently. Like he's in the throne room giving in the letter and you see Cersei tear it up and you got that great line from Tyrion. From this time until the end of time, we are not part of your realm, but a free and independent kingdom of the North. He has more spirit than his father. I'll give him that. You've perfected the art of tearing up papers. <laughs> You've mastered the art of tearing letters. Which you don't get in the book. The other thing difference that I thought was interesting is that in the show, when Thoros lights his sword, he's almost using like Relore magic to do it, or at least that's mm-hmm, mm-hmm, seems mm-hmm. like he's he's using some kind of fire magic to light a sword. In this, from Tyrion's perspective, he's just dipping the sword in wildfire. Right. Right. And and so this sort of exp- which is I guess a different kind of magic. I, I mean. Uh, but at least from the book perspective, you have a slightly different view of Thoris's flaming sword. Right. Yeah, he's got the cash for wildfire, not the mystic of the, the, the mystic which makes power. more sense because you know, famously, he puts down the Greyjoy rebellion with the the flaming sword, and that's before the birth of dragons. Hmm. So it makes more sense that he's got some other way to do it. Hmm. Um, 
that's all I got, guys. So what's going on uh, over with the Lorehounds podcasts? Well, we're in the middle. We're almost getting to the end of Ted Lasso season three, the final uh, season for that, which has been a great run. Uh, is Ted Lasso ending like ending? ending? We, yep. oh, well, it? it's not official. It's not official, but all signs point to it. You know, they're, okay. everybody's saying like, well, it's probably the final season, like all the all the people involved. OK, and so I think they're leaving the door open, but it's it's probably at least not coming back for a long time. OK. All right. We will have picked up, uh, starting May 1st, uh, White House Plumbers, and we're also doing a short form on Barry, which is... Very uh, good. Tell me about White House Plumbers. I'm not familiar with this. It's going to be on HBO. It's going to have Woody Harrelson, and it's about G. Gordon Liddy and all the shenanigans that they get up to in terms of breaking into the uh, Democratic Committee National Headquarters. Ah, It's by the same people who made Veep. So it's that yeah. kind of comedy nice. about yes. Watergate, which seems great. I, I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, no, I, I will be too. So people can find you by searching Lorehounds. Uh, Lorehounds on, yeah, The Lorehounds uh, on your podcast application of choice. We do have a website, thelorehounds.com, and that's got updates of all of our uh, episodes fresh. Uh, we've got a Discord server. There's a link over there as well. Uh, we talk about all the podcasts that or you know the shows that we're covering mm-hmm. um, and the books too if you if you like books because yeah. you're on this feed Forgot we're doing that, a yeah. wizard of Earthsea. we just did mm-hmm. that actually we're doing the tombs of atuan which is the second book in that series and i and, think uh, we do the silmarillion every month too i think yep. next month i'll be jumping on with you to do a, a silmarillion chapter absolutely and unchaining of milkor yes it's yeah. very yeah. exciting a so, lot of things going on on that chapter yeah yeah fantastic uh looking forward to that Thanks, guys. And now Throwback Thursday with comic Steve Osborne. You you wouldn't expect a simple spit to the face to result in beheading. Right. I mean, I've watched a lot of television, Steve. Mm-hmm. And usually what happens is if someone's bound... You should expect if you get right up in their face and start insulting them and lording it over them, you're going to get spat at in the face. Yeah. That's it's just par for the course. Outside of one of your children, has anyone ever spit in your face? Hmm. I don't know if my, my children have even spit in my face. I, I mean, I've been like spit peed up on. It. Yeah, I've been, I've been, you know, I've, I've, I've been covered in feces that that shouldn't have been on me. Yeah, it's a good distinction. <laughs> right. I mean, there's there's feces that I would expect to be on me. <laughs> and then there's feces that I would not expect to be on me. Right. Uh, like this one doesn't feces. match the other one. I mean, I've been in social situations. I mean, I've even been in job interviews where an, a little bit of spittle will actually go onto my body. Like, I'll feel it on my arm or something like that. Right. And in those situations, you have that split second decision that you have to make whether or not you acknowledge it or just pretend that. Or just kill them. <laughs> I, I tend to think, I mean, I, don't, I haven't led a job interview seminar, but if I ever were to, I don't think, <laughs> I don't think beheading would be a, a good move in that 
case. What oh, would you no. do? Would you like make a joke out of it, or what, what, I mean, if if you felt a little bit of spittle on your arm from from the interviewer, from the interviewer, yeah, I would probably just look at him. I would hold it up, make sure to get it in the light so that he could see it. Yeah, and I would say to him, "Say it, don't spray it. We're obviously not a fit. Good day to you, sir." <laughs> I'm making notes. Yeah. <laughs> We try to make it super easy to support making podcasts at Bald Move. Just join the club. But well, some people aren't a joining type, or maybe they're already in the club but want to add a little bit of gratuity for an especially great season of coverage, or for a podcast that really spoke to them or gave them that bit of support in a tough time. For these, and for whatever other reason you might have, our tip jar is always open. Head over to support.baldmove.com and click the donate option to say, hey, keep doing what you're doing. We appreciate it. Once again, check out support.baldmove.com for all the great ways to help me and Jim keep making the podcast you love. I do have a question about A Clash of Kings. Okay. And it's the question about hostages. Hmm. Um, it's a really big deal in Martin's world that certain children are fostered in other houses mm. and that especially after some kind of conflict in order to keep the peace with maybe a house that you're not friendly with, that you would take the hostage. In this case, we, we you know, we see Theon being uh, fosters at Winterfell because yeah. it's the oldest son mm. of Balon. Um, is there was that a was that a major practice? Was that a common practice? I mean, I think that I think there's two elements to it. So the the hostage element, yes, very much so, is part and parcel of you know medieval conflict resolution, whether that's long term or short term, and in various different scenarios that you know you will ask for or demand hostages, and these will be given as a sign of good faith. Um, and to guarantee that both sides behave as they should in a certain circumstance. And are these I mean, usually it, children? These hostages? Yeah. Well, it, normally, yes, because they have to be they have to be hostages of value. Um, mm. So uh, either various examples of nobles, uh, or, or their their children, or in, or indeed, if you really want to to pin somebody down, then yes their own children or, or extended family. So, so yes, if, if, if it's a Lord who's been in rebellion, for example, he may well hand over his son or, mm. or his sons or his nephews or whatever, because yes, there has to be a, a subtext there of if you misbehave again, I can do what I like to your son or, or to mm. your, to your relative, because mm. you have forfeited their, their protection by misbehaving again. And that does happen that there's um, the Scottish uh, Earl of Orkney, Harold Madison rebels against William the Lion um, and has to hand over his son as part of the deal that sees him come in uh, to the king's peace. But his son Thorfinn is, is then kept a prisoner. He's probably kept reasonably well, but he remains a prisoner and he remains the king's to do with as he wishes as a means of making sure that Harold doesn't misbehave. But Harold rebels again. Yeah. Um, and in that circumstance, Thorfinn has his eyes put out and, and he's, I think, is he not castrated as well? Oh my gosh. Um, and he dies of his, of his injuries. Now, actually his death is 
probably not intended. Those types of punishments are, are intended to be non-lethal. Um, it's yeah. meant to be a punishment, not a death. Well, that um, was so going to be my next question. Did these, did this practice of sharing hostages actually serve the, its purpose? Did it keep the peace? And it sounds like it didn't always do that. Well, no, I think it depends on on the context in which it happens, and it, and it depends on on the relationships that are that are looking to be fixed. I mean, I think if you're looking for a a way in which a conflict can be ended, I would suggest that that hostages are less used as a kind of final element, mm. and and far more it's, it's it's a marriage alliance that's then sealed. So if you look at, for example, peace being agreed between Scotland and England in 1328 at the end of the the first war of independence, um, there is that marriage between the two royal families. Uh, young David of Scotland, the, the heir to the Scottish throne, is married to Edward the Third's sister, uh, Joan of the Tower, and that is meant to cement the relationship between the two kingdoms and to ensure peace going right. forward because you've united the two families together in marriage so that they're actually then related to each other. Of course, right. it doesn't work that way. War restarts again four years later. Um, but but, but that, that's what's intended. Yeah. Right. And then I've, then my, my, my other question would be, how long did this last? Like, Theon <laughs> is, is kept... You know, until he's an adult, did, did this ha did this last forever, or you know, what, what was the standard on this? I, I think I think hostages, yeah. I mean, they, they should be kept for as long as, as the the terms of 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 whatever agreement has been made uh, are, are satisfied. So, um, the, the one example would be uh, David. The second of Scotland is captured in battle, spends 11 years in English captivity, uh, and as part of the ransom negotiated for his release, has to hand over a bundle of, of Scottish noble prisoners that turns out is mostly, again, the sons of the Scottish nobility right. um, are handed over to serve. And they're there essentially as surety to make sure that he continues to pay his ransom. Right. So while that ransom is still outstanding, those prisoners remain in England. Um, and at least one of them uh, is still there, uh, I think, about seven or eight years later uh, when a, a bout of plague passes through England and he actually catches and dies from the plague while in, in English captivity, still as a, as a hostage for his king paying his ransom. Right. So, yeah, these, these things can last for a long time. Well, I think the complexity of the agreement for which they've been given in the first place can often dictate what that is. I mean, you, you'll also have hostages handed over for quite short-term transactions effectively um, right. just to solve something in the here and now but once 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 it's been resolved then then the hostages are handed back or at least yeah. the hostages should be handed back so if you can capture some, like a knight on the battlefield like jamie's caught you know jamie's yeah. and kept alive you could easily turn around and trade that for someone maybe who's been in captivity for a, a very long time yeah, uh, you absolutely can, and that, that does happen. That kind of exchange of prisoners. Uh, I mean, Robert, Robert the Bruce, Robert the First of Scotland does that in the aftermath of the Battle of Bannockburn. Has in his possession some very high-ranking English prisoners uh, as a result of the English defeat, uh, and so was able to exchange them for his wife, his daughter, his sister, mm. the Bishop of St Andrews. All these people that have been in English captivity for a number of years. Um, uh, was hmm. that eight years uh, at that point? So you know he, he's able to exchange them, but but I think also. Um, I mean, Jamie's perhaps a bit different just because of his value, uh, but but somebody maybe slightly further down the scale, what what they should have been able to do is go home to raise a ransom. 
because you know you have to be able to access your money uh, or, or try and raise that money. But but in return, you would often hand over another member of your family as a hostage to make sure that you come back again, either with the money or, or to surrender yourself back into captivity huh. because you haven't raised it yet. Huh. Fascinating stuff. <laughs> fascinating stuff what a weird world <laughs> i mean i shouldn't I, I, say it's that weird someone just really recently tried to kidnap the um the speaker of the house yeah uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> in my in yeah. my hometown of san francisco so uh <laughs> another weird world um, yes, I, I always i always try and argue to my students that the medieval period is not all that different we just perhaps perceive it that way but... <laughs> exactly. 